Okay. So again, I put this up here. This is not so I can get text messages, so I can keep track of the time. Um, and I've got to find something that works here. The sun is just like, you know. Uh, so I don't know if it's going to be hat or glasses. I, I really don't like. Is that okay? I mean, I don't like, uh, you know, when you can't see people's eyes because you can't tell if they're lying to you. you know? So, or what? <laughs> or sleeping. Yeah, right. Okay, so if it's all right, I'm just going to go ahead and use uh, use my glasses. So, um, Nancy and I, over a year ago, uh, began planning for uh, an event that was supposed to happen next week. It was the uh, 50th wedding anniversary. And although our wedding anniversary isn't actually until December, uh, we thought it would probably be easier to get people, you know, friends and family to come to Sun River in July than December, do you think? Uh, so anyway, so we began, you know, uh, you know, a lot of preparations. We, it was for Hickman's, it was a highly organized thing. And we would turn the, turn the, uh, you know, scheduling and so forth and contact with all the relatives and friends and stuff over to daughters-in-law. Uh, we, uh, you know, rented houses here in Sun River. Now this is all over, you know, last year. Uh, we planned activities, made, you know, uh, you know, the plans that we need to do things while they're here. Uh, we plan to have catering. I mean, it was going to be kind of a thing, right? And then long about March, this COVID thing came along. And starting in March, or maybe shortly thereafter, one by one or two by two, they started to drop off, right? And then just this last week, the last one canceled. So it's just going to be us. No, that's okay. You know, um, the wheels came off and everybody, you know, began to cancel. And I don't have to ask you about your plans for this summer because I know they've been disrupted. I'll bet they're still being disrupted. In fact, the plans for the whole world have been disrupted. And anyone who tells you that one man can't change the world has not worked in a virus lab in Wuhan, China. You and I don't know how long this is going to last. You don't know when it's going to end. We don't know what it's going to look like when it ends, if it ends. And on top of this, just when we were starting to get this a little bit dialed in, then came the violence of the protests, right? The social disruption. And that rocked us further back on our heels. There was the murders, the, I don't know if this is even a word, but the destatuing of monuments. There was war zone type territorialism, as you guys know, set up in, in the downtowns of major cities. And, and, uh, in the face of, 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 of looting and riots and so forth, police were actually told to stand down. And we're standing here in disbelief saying, what's going on? I have a friend that has a business in Portland. And he told me a long, long ago, he said, you know, we're not sending our uh, our equipment or our people into downtown Portland because we want our people and our equipment back. People are fearful and anxious. 
and depressed, and it shows. Did you know that last year, uh, I mean, this year compared to last year, overdoses jumped 18% in March. Now, get get a load of this. 18% in March compared with last year, 29% in April, 42% in May. And the doctors tell us that uh, COVID-19 is pushing us into a mental health crisis. Emergency rooms are being flooded and overwhelmed with people suffering from anxiety and depression. Now, I'm sorry to sound like the news channel, you know, the 24-hour news channels, but you get the point. That's what you're getting all the time, right? 24-7. And looks like we're totally out of control with no end in sight. And even Christians aren't immune. I probably shouldn't use that word. Even Christians aren't exempt, right, from these things. I myself, because the, 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 the present and the future both look dark and, you know, kind of foreboding and threatening. And I myself slip into discouragement and fear. And I'm asking the same questions you are. Where is this going? How is this going to end? Now, as a Christian, I know that I shouldn't feel that way. You get that too? You know, you've got these thoughts and feelings that you know as a Christian you shouldn't have. But I wonder how is it that I should think and how is it that I should feel? And, and our passage today, as you're turning to Acts 21, gives us the answer about real hope and encouragement. It's a story of the Jerusalem church and the Apostle Paul doing their flat-level best to diffuse an explosive situation. But you know what? The bomb detonates anyway. The wheels come off, and the whole city plunges into chaos. Now, about A.D. 57, 27 years or so after the time that Jesus had suffered in in Jerusalem, 25, 27 years. Paul is returning from his third mission trip and final mission trip. And actually, if you want to divide a whole half of the book of Acts into two real easy things to remember, it would be like this. From Acts 13 to 21, we see Paul the preacher, Paul the missionary. Now from Acts chapter 22 on through the end of the book, Acts chapter 28, we're going to see Paul the prisoner, the prisoner. You know, God had told Paul way back in Ephesus that he was going to go to Jerusalem. And Paul told his his traveling companions, he says, I'm going to be, I'm bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen. Well, the Lord solved that because he sent a number of people, one of which was Agabus, as you remember from last week, who actually took Paul's belt and bound his hands and bound his feet and says, that's what's going to happen to the guy that owns this belt. And the disciples, you remember, were there, and they were begging Paul not to go. I love it in verse 14, you know, uh, right before where we're going to pick up here in, in chapter 21, verse 14, it says, Paul would not be persuaded. And finally, after all else failed, the disciples said, the will of the Lord be done. So they got there last where they should have been first, right? The will of the Lord be done. So Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. I think he had really high hopes because Paul uh, was, was bringing to Jerusalem at a time of Pentecost, which is 
which is also called the Feast of Firstfruits. So after all of these missionary journeys that Paul had been on, Paul was actually bringing Gentile believers, the fruit of his ministry, back to Jerusalem at the time of first fruits, right? I think he had really high hopes that the Gentiles and the Jews were going to get, you know, get over this racial thing, right? Joined in the church and in unity, and it was all going to come together. And I think one of the ways that he, he, he expected this to happen is he had actually been very deliberate and very purposeful about collecting a financial gift when he was on his last missionary journey to take back from these Gentile churches in Europe and over in Western um, Asia back to Jerusalem to help out the poor church in Jerusalem. So here he comes with the gift. But there's a problem. Let's pick up in verse 17 of chapter 21, Acts 17, 21. Paul says, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. After he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said, you see, brother... How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So Paul was saying, hey, there's been a lot of things going on. And and he's very systematic about talking about thing after thing, one after one, about what God has been doing. So they glorify God. And they said, oh, by the way, Paul, you know, did you know in Jerusalem there's been thousands of Jews that have come to Jesus Christ? And they were glorifying God about that. It's not too late for disaster. He says, you see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the custom. So the good news was that there was thousands of Jewish converts that had come to Christ. The bad news was that they were zealous for the law. And the worst news was that they were persuaded by rumors that Paul was teaching Jews to forsake Moses and circumcision and their Jewish heritage. And that wasn't true. I mean, it was demonstrable it wasn't true because Paul did teach that Jesus had fulfilled the law and that adherence to the law couldn't save anyone. But he also... In the process of this ministry, had Timothy, his traveling companion and disciple, circumcised so that he could reach the Jews. So Paul actually had Timothy circumcised. So the rumor about circumcision could not possibly be true. And the rumor about forsaking the law. Paul himself, in Acts 18.18, it says that Paul had taken a vow according to the Nazarite uh, vow given in the law in, 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 in the book of Numbers. And there is no evidence whatsoever that Paul went around persuading Jewish Christians to be non-observant true. But the rumors persisted. And they weren't the only problem. Because this was an annual feast time in Jerusalem, Pentecost. And Jewish nationalism ran at fever pitch. I mean, the the feasts were the things that sent the Jews apart, right? In their own mind. That was one of the things where they came together and celebrate their Jewishness. Gentiles were not appreciated or even welcome in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the Romans from time to time had to put down 
riots, Jewish riots that occurred in Jerusalem because of the nationalism, because of the Jewish fervor that enveloped the city. Matter of fact, uh, Josephus, the historian, writes that the Romans had learned (laughs) over time, right, to expect trouble and to station extra troops in Jerusalem for this very reason. And it's interesting that the fact that there are more troops there kind of plays out a little bit later in the story. So here comes Paul into this tinderbox with some Gentile converts even as he himself is suspected of teaching the Jews to forsake their Judaism. It's the perfect storm. It's the perfect storm. Now, James, the apostle and brother of Jesus, along with the church elders, had seen this coming and are already ready with a plan. Let's read that plan in verse 22. What then is to be done about this rumor? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you. But that you yourself also, Paul, walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, just like he was told, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So their plan was this. Paul would openly display his adherence to the laws and traditions by purifying himself. And going beyond that, In case there was any doubt, he was going to pay the considerable expenses of these four men that were under a Nazarite vow. And they were going to complete that vow, and that cost bucks. So Paul was going to be out in the open there, be in public, taking care of those things, proving himself that he adhered, that he he was an adherent to law, and certainly didn't speak against him. And so, and their thinking was, you know, by undergoing purification himself and even paying the vows of others, the rumors that Paul was forsaking the law would be squelched. Now, some of the commentaries, matter of fact, most of them, make a big deal about whether Paul was compromising the gospel by his adherence to ritual purification and his involvement with the Nazarite vows. But if we look a little closer, and you don't have to look a lot closer, we remember that the law is divided into three categories, right? The law that the Jew, the Jewish law, the law of Moses was divided into three categories. The Torah was divided into three categories. Moral law, that's like the Ten Commandments, and that is law to which every person, every time, everywhere is responsible. The moral law. And Christ fulfilled that law. But there's another kind of law. There's civil law that has to do with property and crimes and and, and court settlements and things like that just for Jewish life. We would call it statutory law. It's the laws we live by. You know, how you buy a piece of property, how you get it paid for, how you know, all those kinds of things. And thirdly, there was ceremonial law. And that's laws for Israel's worship. And that's what these vows were. They were contained in in Jewish 
uh, law as ceremonial or ritual law. Now, the, the purpose of a vow is to express gratitude to God for some deliverance or benefit or else simply to prove devotion to him. But in either case, it's not commanded by the law. It's voluntary. It is a one-time thing. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with the moral aspects and the requirements of the Ten Commandments. And so it was. Now, by the way, you say, well, why was Paul being uh, purified? Why did he need to be purified? Earlier in, in Numbers, I think it's in chapter 9, we find that any, any Jew that had been traveling in a foreign land, a Gentile land, was when he came back to Israel, he came back particularly to Jerusalem, he needed to go and undergo a rite of purification because he'd been in this unclean territory. So Paul was doing that. And it, and it just so happened, I think, that James and the rest of these guys figured out, okay, hey, look, we can plug this in with this over here, and Paul can come and do his rite of purification. And at the same time, that'll coincide with the end of the Nazarite vow that these other four guys have taken. Everybody will see it, and it'll work out just fine. Everybody will know that Paul is adhering to the law, right? So did Paul compromise the gospel, though, by adhering to this law? Absolutely not. You know how we know? Because as you read through this, Luke doesn't make a big deal of it. He just mentions it. You know, the church said, hey, Paul, we want you to do this. Paul said, okay, next day went in. It's not a big deal. Make it. Luke doesn't make a big deal out of it. Paul doesn't make a big deal out of it. And we shouldn't make a big deal out of it. Paul was simply accommodating weaker Jewish brothers for the sake of the gospel. Because... Having the profile that he had, his gospel voice was at stake. If they could pin on him that he was teaching and encouraging Jews to forsake Moses, I mean, Moses, you know, or, or any of these accusations like this or circumcision goes all the way back to Abraham. They could, they could completely destroy his gospel voice before he got out of the chute. So the goal of unity and, and kind of short-circuiting these rumors was well-conceived. And it didn't all seem to be working. See, in verse 26 and 27, Then Paul took them in the next day, purifying himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification and, until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. When the seven days were almost over, they almost made it. The Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him. They were almost there. And then the wheels came off. And the situation exploded into chaos. Look in verse 28. These Jews from Asia crying out, men of Israel. I mean, this is like a national emergency, right? They're not saying, hey, you guys stand around. It's like, everybody that's in Israel, come to our aid. Help. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere. Listen to this. Against our people and the law and this place, which means the temple, because that's where they were. And besides this, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the, in the city with them. By the way, Trophimus was one of the guys that traveled from 
Europe to uh, Jerusalem with Paul. He's with Gentile. And they'd seen Trophimus in the city with him, not in the temple, but in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And then all the city was provoked. That's a citywide deal. And the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. So if we recap, the plan for Paul coming in and doing what he did was to remove any suspicion or any doubt about the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But here are Jews from Asia who were not converted. These are the Jews likely that gave Paul so much trouble causing riots on another continent. And we don't know if they followed Paul just because they wanted to hassle him or tear him down, or if they were actually Jews that came because they wanted to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. But it doesn't matter. There they were in the temple. This was a landmine that they hadn't anticipated. And it turned into a national crisis. Men of Israel, Paul preaches against the law and our people in this place. And he's even defiled it. You know what that's like? That's like if you can imagine a big NRA rally, right? Huge NRA rally. And somebody shouting, hey, this guy's trying to take away our guns. It was a big deal. It caused a big reaction. But you know what? God had positioned Paul there in the temple at ground zero where these rumors, these ignitable, flammable rumors crossed with Jewish fervor and nationalism. It was the perfect storm and there was an explosion. Let's read about the explosion. Verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came back to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, that's good. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking him who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. So you know what mob scenes are like. I'm watching them on TV. Nobody can hear themselves think. People are shouting different things. And the commander couldn't find the facts because of the uproar, so he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, Paul was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude kept following and shouting, Away with him! And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? That is, Paul said that to the commander. And then the commander, who had thought that he was an Egyptian assassin, said this, then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Because the Roman commander couldn't conceive that there was anything this big that would ignite this big and turn into this much chaos this quick besides the reemergence of this Jewish, excuse me, of this Egyptian assassin, a Sakari, they called them. 
a matter of fact, Aid uh, Josephus again tells us that about 400 of his followers had been killed, but this guy somehow managed to escape. And so the Roman commander's thinking, okay, that's who this guy is. But he found out right away when Paul spoke Greek that it wasn't. But Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of knowing significant sinning. I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. You know, I told you about the Romans stationing extra troops during feast times. Their barracks was known as the Fortress of Antonia. And it was only up two flights of stairs. Two flights of stairs from where this action was taking place in the temple grounds. And there was a thousand men stationed there. We know because the commander, the word for that is Chiliarch, which means ruler of a thousand. It says that he sent down centurions, which are each in command of at least 100 people. So there's 200 soldiers minimum down there seeing to this thing. Romans on the spot, just like that. You know, it's interesting because the Romans, for all of the things that they did, they were respectful, of, uh, for the most part, of the worship temples and things like that of the Greeks and, uh, and of the nations that they, they conquered. And it was understood in Jerusalem that if you were caught in the temple and you had defiled it somehow, that the Romans would actually do the killing for the Jews. But they wanted to drag Paul out of the temple first so that they didn't defile it when they killed him. That's kind of neat. Crowd so violent that they had to carry Paul on their shoulders. This has exploded into chaos. This isn't just a disruption anymore. And the question I think that we should answer here is, where is God in all this disruption and chaos? Because if we can see Him in there... Disruption and chaos, we can learn where to look for them in our own. You know, when I think of an explosion, I think about an accident. I mean, explosions are accidents, right? I mean, I just kind of think of those two things together. And I think automatically that it's something that's out of control. But in this explosion... God was the one with his finger on the detonator. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that God caused this. What I mean was, is that God superintended all of this through the free agency of men. Through their own free will and through their own decisions and their own prejudices and their own angers and their own... All of these things that make up people, God works through that to, con- to do His will. You know, I used to think that explosions were just, you know, out of control, just didn't mean anything. And my wife brought up this last week, she said, have you ever watched the video of the stardust in Las Vegas? It's a famous video. I think it's in March of 2007. Uh, they did this Las Vegas style. They did it at night. 
the they were going to tear the stardust down. It was all in the crevice. And, you know, so, you know, about the imploding thing like that. And so they shoot off all the fireworks and all the thinking. And you keep thinking, well, they still haven't blown it up yet, you know. And But they're doing it Las Vegas style. Man, it's a huge production. And then finally, you see these little explosions that are strategically placed and the building just falls in on itself. All explosions are not destructive in the end because they, with the stardust, were tearing down something to make room for something better. Explosions can be very beneficial. The church didn't intend for this explosion. They planned to avoid it. Martin Luther in 1517, when he, you know, nailed his theses, theses on the door of the chancellery at the University of Wittenberg. He didn't want an explosion. He was just trying to start a discussion. But it exploded. Exploded and rocked the whole world. You know, Luther just intended for these to be discussion points. But you know what? It turned into an explosion. And you are here today because of that explosion. And you're not reading your Bible in Latin either because of that. Explosions jumble things up. But God's explosions are not accidental or out of control, but purposeful. Think about this. The Romans came to arrest Paul. The Romans, right? They came to arrest Paul, but they actually rescued him. The hated Romans became Paul's protectors. The Romans to the rescue. What? And they were brought over to the steps of the barracks. You know, the two flights of steps down to the where the action was, up to their barracks. And they put Paul up there. And those steps to the barrack became Paul's pulpit to testify to a whole city. You know, the <laughs> I think one of the most amazing things one of the guys said in commentary is that all these Jews became quiet. Paul just moved his hand like this and the crowd becomes quiet. How, how does that happen? And it says, if we were looking a little bit further into chapter 22, when he began to speak in the Hebrew dialect, that they became even more quiet. And Paul was able not only to preach and testify to the whole city, assembled quiet and listening, but the next day to the Jewish council. And it was an infinitely greater opportunity for the advancement of the gospel than the church or Paul could ever hope for or dream. And it came about as an explosion. So as we go through times of disruption and chaos, what can we learn? He is Lord over the chaos. He is Lord over the chaos. He is Lord in the chaos. He is using the chaos for his purposes. He's present. He's presiding. And he's prevailing in the chaos. You see, the church's goal was just to, to keep the peace and the unity. But God, his, the Bible says that his thoughts are higher and that his ways are higher than we can comprehend. 
The church's idea here was a good one. It was a good plan to keep the peace and unity in Jerusalem. But God had global plans for advancing the gospel. Because did you know that as a, real, as a result of Paul's arrest, that later on, if we just kind of telescope out to the end of Acts, Paul is able to give two testimonies of Christ before Jewish councils. I mean, that's the muckety-mucks. Those are the religious, you know, uh, rulers. He's able to give two testimonies, kind of a private audience with these guys. He testifies before two governors. He testifies before one king. And he even makes his way to get the gospel into the very household of Caesar himself in Rome. Because of this explosion. The church wanted to manage the situation. God said, no, let's have a riot. You see, the church's idea was in order for the gospel to be advanced, Paul had to be free and he had to be respected. But God said, no, I think for the gospel to advance, Paul has to be hated and in jail. You get it? His ways are higher than I. Our ways, he is present, he is presiding, and he's prevailing. So as we strive to be faithful in our own time of chaos, I think we can count on God to provide unexpected help for one thing. Where'd Paul's help come from? Romans to the rescue? What? And I just want you to think about this as, as, as fear grips you, anxiety grips you about what's going on around you. Those Romans didn't come riding into Jerusalem the day this happened. They were upstairs a thousand of them, locked, loaded, and ready. And so is your deliverance with God's protection. It's already there. But who to thunk it? There would be the Romans. So one thing, we can, we can expect that God provide unexpected help. The other thing is we can expect Him to provide strategic opportunities. Like I said, testifying to a whole city, a hush city. They're actually listening. In this present chaos, God is giving us, you and me, opportunities like never before because people are coming to the end of themselves, to the end of the structures that they trust, to the things that they have relied on and counted on for their whole life. They're feeling the earth move under their feet. Somebody should write a song about that. Unprecedented opportunities are coming our way. I want to say, too, that what we see here, I think, needs to inform our prayers. We need to be big prayers when God is doing big things. Christians need to put away the small ball prayers. You know what small ball is? It's like it's baseball incremental. We're not trying to hit home runs. We're not trying to do that. We're just trying to get a guy on base and the next guy get him around like just a little piece at a time like that. That's small ball. And Christians, during times like this when God is doing big things, need to be praying big prayers. Not just about me 
and mine and ours, but about what God's doing in the world, God, about what God's doing in our community. And not pleading for a return to normal when God is the one who has instigated the crisis. Our hope is not a return to normal, people. It's not. It never has been. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and in His reign. You see, normal, and I'm saying this to myself, please, no more than you, or maybe more than you. Normal has produced a church that's apathetic to a dying world. Normal has enticed a generation of Christians to be self-absorbed. Normal has given us a lightweight God who exists to serve us. We don't want to pray for a return to that. We don't know what it's going to look like, but He does. And it's for our good and it's for our benefit. I love Psalm 97. It says... The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. I mean, that's it, right? He's in control. He's running the show. It says that he is surrounded by clouds and thick darkness. But it means he's reigning. But you know what? You can't see inside. You can't see. Oh, I see what he's doing. Okay, well, I'll figure out, you know. Yeah, I know what God's going to do here. You know, No! We can't see it. And if we could see it, we wouldn't get it. But we know, as the next verse goes on to say in Psalm 97, that his throne, the foundation of his throne, is righteousness and justice. God's doing a good thing. He's doing a good thing. So are we praying for return to normal? Or are we praying like those disciples that we first talked about? In verse 14, that after trying their best to persuade Paul not to go to Jerusalem, not to go into the suffering, not to do this, it says, finally, after all else failed, they said, the will of the Lord be done. May that be our prayer now in confidence. Say, bring it, God. Bring repentance and renewal into my life. Bring me to trust and to love you more. Bring me not to be at home in this world. Bring me along for your kingdom and not to be normal. Make no mistake. There's suffering involved. And you know, you want to avoid suffering and I do too. And so does everybody else in this chaos. But you know what the world longs for more than that? Is something, some truth, something they can count on, some meaning, some love, some relationship that's worth the suffering. And that's what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that... Uh, you are in control, not only control, but mastery and loving control 
Lord, that you have plans for the glorification of your son and your church and all that you've done, Lord, that far outstrips anything that we can put our arms around. So, Lord, knowing this and seeing this in this uh, example here, help us not to play small ball with our prayer or with our lives. We love you. And what's more, we thank you, Lord, that we are loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen.